Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. If you've got something cool working with v6, hey, we want to hear about it. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host, Tom Coffey and Scott Hogan. Today, we're going to be talking about IPv6 and unique local addresses, or ULA. So let's jump in and, and chat about ULA, because this seems to be coming up more and more at least in, in, in a bunch of discussions that we're having with, with customers, but also just in general, it seems like there's a lot of confusion about where ULA actually fits in and, and, and everything else. So maybe we sort of cover what the heck is ULA? <laughs> yeah, start from there, right? Like, why is it here? Yeah, why is it here? What, what's the purpose of it? Um, maybe, that, maybe that helps out because uh, I, I guess the easy way to start there is how is it different than global gas addresses? <laughs> like, wh- what's, the, what's the point of it? I don't know. I, they wrote something in the RFC, right, about this, um, why they actually, you know, wanted to build something called ULA. I'll pull up the RFC abstract, but in in like the short version, if you're just out on the street and asking about ULA, what is it? It's just like, well, aren't those private addresses for IPv6? I mean, isn't that sort of the general answer when you first encounter it? That's kind of what what the thinking is. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's the analogy that everyone puts together most quickly. I guess that's the the easy answer. I mean, mm-hmm. it's technically not quite the same, but it's but it's pretty close. I mean, it's on the mark, right? So, so I think that's that's what it is. But it's still it's still a globally unique prefix, right? I mean, that's yeah, and and that sort of gets lost in the mix, right? It's globally scoped, and it's a little strange because the whole idea is well. Uh, you know, if this is, if these are private addresses, you would expect them to not be routed in the DFZ ever. Um, you'd expect them to be on, you know, that prefix to be on the Bogon list. And that's uh, certainly, that's true of, of ULA, but it does have a global scope, which is kind of sort of then paradoxical, right? Well, is it, you know, is it global? Is it, or is it local? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that, that's a little strange in terms of trying to explain exactly what's going on there. And then, and, you know, it is a well-known prefix. It's, it's defined. I guess we should actually describe what the prefix actually is. But I, I, I think the um, the the goal they were really trying to go for was an address space that could be privately interconnected without creating any address conflicts. I guess right is sort of the attempt, so that they could use it to do that potentially around maybe renumbering or you know maybe ISPs could use this for sort of intermittent connections, things like that. Yeah. The abstract in the RFC says the document defines an IPv6 unicast address format that is globally unique and is intended for local communications. So right away, you're like kind of scratching your head, like, okay, it's local, but it's also global somehow. Okay. Uh, Usually inside of a site, that's what the the RFC says. um, These addresses are not expected to be routable on the global internet. So that's the abstract. Um, not a whole lot of information, but uh, it is an abstract after all. Right, right. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that seems to lay it out. And I'm, 
I've seen companies try and use it in, in, in a couple of different ways. Some of them want to build their entire network out of ULA address space. Well, and then, right. Yeah. And then of course, right away, you run into a problem because the way that you're supposed to technically provision ULA, and that's a little strange, I guess you said it a minute, a minute ago, and we should back up and, and start from the definition of ULA. So, so everyone's on the same page that's listening. So you have a, you have a prefix that's been reserved for ULA and it's the FC00 double colon slash seven. But then right away, we're not supposed to use that entire block. According to the RFC, we take half of that and we just what, stick it in reserve. So, yeah, so F, FD00 um, double colon slash eight, is that the reserved portion? No, no, that's the portion you're that's supposed the, to use. That's yeah. the portion we're supposed yeah. to actually provision, right? So FC00 double colon slash eight is not to be used. It's it's held in reserve. And right away, that's a little confusing because now we have that that issue with where you have to look at the cider length where you'll hose yourself really quickly. So if you see, but but the bottom line is if you see ULA, FC, FC anything, you, you've violated the standard. I mean, you know right away that you're you're not doing something correct. So then of the portion that you're supposed to allocate out of, the FD00 double colon slash eight, the idea is that you're you're supposed to generate a random prefix that is no longer than a slash 48. And then you're you're going to deploy out of that 48. And if you need more address space, you are supposed to generate another random prefix. So then you never have contiguous space larger than a slash 48. And it's just these randomized blocks, these randomized prefixes where the prefix ID is, is, is random. So from an operational standpoint, that seems like right away, like really limited. I mean, I can't, you know, and especially where, you know, we're giving advice on the address planning side. It's like, well, hey, you know, you're going to need a large block. If you have a large network, you need contiguous space and you need to be able to number out of prefixes and potentially do sparse allocation and all these neat things that you can do with the, the huge amount of space you have in IPv6. And you got to toss all that out the window because all you're going to get are these slash 48s that are, you know, random and but of course, folks just ignore that, right? I mean, that's generally, yeah, the reality. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what they wrote in the RFC. That doesn't mean that's what people are doing. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> people don't pay attention to what it says to do in the RFC. Yeah, so it's it's just sort of funny in terms of in terms of how that that works out. So almost no one that I see that has stood up ULA does 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 the randomization portion of it. So I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone actually really do that and, and enforce it in any way. I think it's fine for things like a local VPN, a VPN pool or something like that. You could easily just randomly generate one for a local VPN pool. 48 is going to be large enough for most people's VPN resource requirements. And so you could just sign those out at different geographies. You really don't care what prefix it is. It just doesn't matter because it's just the purpose is just to be able to use as that VPN link to be able to get an address to the far side. That's it. Yeah, that's so, right. Well, and then and then even even the generation of a, of a quote unquote random prefix ID, you know, that's going to drive all the cryptography folks nuts because they're like, well, it's not really random. What method did you use to generate the random prefix? Because it's probably you you probably screwed that up, and it's not actually truly random. Anyway, I got to poke the cryptography folks. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's they, they don't call it true random; they call it pseudo random. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <is that> right. <laughs> so, yeah, so we shouldn't lose any sleep over that, right? So, we, yeah, it basically is, is is based off of 64-bit NTP format, so it's it's using time timestamps. So, yeah, it's theoretically possible for two people to generate at the same timestamp and potentially come up with the same random prefix. But what's the likelihood that they're actually connected to each other and doing anything? Is, yeah. Oh, no. Second yeah. question. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, and so, and you said it earlier a minute ago, nobody, everybody ignores this anyway. So chances are, if you're deploying ULA, you haven't paid any attention to that. And you're just like, I don't know, starting out one mm-hmm. FC zero or FD. FD, if you're doing it right. Well, <laughs> not, probably. You yeah. might be doing FC, <laughs> which <laughs> you're yeah, doing exactly, it wrong. Exactly, yeah. You're just like ignoring everything. and FC, FD, anything goes. Yeah, because I think enterprises want to, you know, follow the same methods they've used in the past, you know, and mm-hmm. they view ULA as a private address space. They're familiar with IPv4, RFC 1918 address space. It's private and they want to have the same kind of privacy they same. think there is some privacy inherent in using ula and and they're right you know the the local part of it keeps it from being used out on the internet the unique part of it is that randomized 40-bit number you just talked about but if they don't use the uniqueness by creating the random number then it really is just local right. <laughs> no ula exactly. it's just la, <laughs> LA. and <laughs> It's essentially like the old site local prefix. You know, there was an RFC 35, 13 decades ago with this address space that was then deprecated in RFC 3879, which was a site local prefix, which was used locally only inside of a site or only inside of your organization. Also, like ULA, not to be used out on the Internet. But the IETF deemed in in its deprecation of the RFC that it didn't provide uniqueness, that it did allow for overlaps like what we have today with IPv4. And so the IETF just didn't want to repeat the mistakes of the past with v4 and said, well, let's come up with this unique randomization approach to prevent overlaps. But if everyone doesn't do the randomized, you know, the pseudo-random function. Yeah, we're back to the same thing. Then we're back to <laughs> yeah. site local, which has the overlaps. You know, yeah. that's the problem. And I, I guess one of the other ulterior motives, I guess, was sort of like the the potential of like being able to merge two ULA networks and have lower probability that you have collisions. Is that, you know, is that something? Like I've, I've heard people say that, but I've never seen it actually documented really any place that says like that was one of their like, you know, sort of like, hey, this is the consideration around the, the the local portion, but the reason we want to have the randomization on the global address is to make these sorts of things easier. I don't know if that makes it any easier because global unicast address space guarantees that you won't have that. So like, why would you be super concerned about that portion of it? I don't know. I mean, I, I get it for maybe like VPN pools or like maybe an out-of-band network that it could be useful that way. And then you're going to reduce the likelihood of collisions for, for those sorts of things because you're just never going to route that stuff on the internet. So I suppose there's some advantage there maybe for intersite communication, you know, for renumbering and site merging. Oh, it's actually in the RFC. Look at that. So and there you go. They, they claim that that's one of the things that they want for merging multiple sites. 
is one of the things. And then they claim something around site border routers and firewall packet filters that they say that this stuff should not make it through and you should drop it to the floor. And, and on the DNS side, they say that you can actually make these as as, a, as DNS records, but they, but they say that you shouldn't be bleeding them out on, on the public internet. So you have to put firewalling in on your yeah, DNS. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, on the other hand, this RFC is from like 2005 and hasn't been updated and, and it's kind of, you know, trapped in amber operationally yeah. anyway, that you know, there's a lot of IPv6 deployment practice that, that you know, has, has used some of what's here, but ignored a lot of it. And uh, the operational sort of approaches that they're, they're talking about haven't, haven't radically changed, but, you know, it, it is kind of, I, I don't know what's being recommended, you know, is how relevant is that to the folks that are deploying it today? Well, I have a question for the two of you guys. I mean, have you have you seen anyone actually use the randomization within their production network of doing ULA deployment? Have you have you ever actually seen anyone do that side of it? Because I've never seen it. I've I've seen ULA deploy for 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 customers, mm-hmm. but I've never seen them do the actual, you know, random pseudo random generation portion of it. They just started with FDO. <laughs> you know, well, they actually matched their worse yet, they matched their RFC nineteen eighteen and started embedding. RFC nineteen eighteen, so they could sort of correlate between the right. two, which is like a, there's a whole different discussion around that. But you know, they they were trying to match up basically what they had done in RFC nineteen eighteen and trying to sort of glue that together yeah. with what they were trying to do with ULA. Yeah, I saw an organization do FC. Right. I know that's in production in an isolated like lab environment. Well, product testing environment. But not random, not a random prefix. Not idea. random. Yeah, I've never not seen random. it either. And it, so I guess I guess we should probably back up and say then that for the deployments we have seen, what operational or or architectural problem or um, you know were they trying to solve or or what sort of d- design principles were they trying to to institute in using ULA? Because I think that's where you get wrapped around the axle like pretty quickly and. I'll go ahead and just throw out that I think in many cases that ULA is being deployed as, you know, a substitute in IPv6 for IPv4 private addressing. It's like, well, I, you know, we have this 10 space, this 172.16 space, 192.168 space that we use in IPv4. And hey, here's this new IPv6 stuff. It looks really cool. What are the private addresses? Because I want to do what I'm doing with IPv4. And certainly nothing wrong with that impulse. It saves us a lot of time in the short term. So what do I use in IPv6? Oh, hey, look, here's these unique local addresses. It looks like these are the equivalent of, of RFC 1918. So I'm just going to go ahead and deploy that. Would you guys think, would you guys argue that that's probably the, the majority case for folks that are deploying ULA? Yeah, it could be that. Or, hey, I read this doc from the vendor and the vendor's examples all used ULA space. And so I'm really just following guidance from my vendor, a config guide, a a document from them and I just am following along for lack of, of anything better. Right. Um, Cause that, that, and that's just a, a gap in knowledge, right. In terms of mm-hmm. understanding, I think the one use case, so I saw a very large, um, very, 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 very large technology company uh, deployed uh, ULA, did it as FC <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, absolutely did not follow the randomization requirement. And, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're on their third attempt to do V6 deployment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after, I wonder why. After it was, <laughs> after it was pointed out, this was a really bad idea. 
Yeah, um, yeah. If you've ever, t- if you just go and generate your own 40-bit random number and convert it to hex, and you'll see. It's it's not elegant. It's not easy to type. It's not easy to remember. Right. And, you know, Tom will tell us if you if you did a proper IPv6 address plan using global addresses, each hex digit would be meaningful and intuitive and operationally elegant. But <laughs> ULA, not elegant. It's, yeah. it's an ugly address. It's complete. If you've done it right, it's completely random. FD will be the same. The next 40 bits are going to look like like random just right. hex digits. Uh, alphabet, and then, alphabet soup. It's going to that's yeah. what it's going to look like. And then you only get a 48 out of it. And then every new site you want to go do something with, you got to do that again. And you end up with a ton of these <laughs> random numbers. And they're they're terrible yeah and it, like as a thought experiment imagine doing that in ipv4 so okay so i've got a 10 in the first octet and then the next two octets are going to be randomly generated and then i'm going to have a it, it'll always be a slash 24 so my entire network topology is just this collection of randomized slash 24s with the two middle octets being just randomly generated like try to manage that which one goes where and you have no context you can't put it in the yeah, exactly any topology well, and then stick in randomly 192, 168, and 172, 16 through. Yeah, you know, exactly. Just, yeah, you can kind just of start only, randomly yeah. generating all over the place. And then yeah, say, imagine like, yeah, that. Mm-hmm. And then say, like, look how great my route table looks. <laughs> I guess it doesn't really matter <laughs> for today's age and all that. No, it's probably all slash 24s, anyways. You're right. If you're lucky, <laughs> if you're lucky, it's slash 24s. It's like, yeah. I'm going to say you have to generate them all as slash 30s. So, <laughs> yeah, that's more realistic. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, you know, as you can probably tell, we we bring a little bit of bias to this. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor Interoptic. Interoptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly U.S.-based OEM agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. Interoptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. Well, and then we're we're kind of burying the lead as well, right? Because we're talking about all the address planning issues and having all these random 48s lying around and how useless that can be. Of course, nobody does that. But what we haven't mentioned yet is the, the catastrophe that is ULA in terms of how it's handled by um, address selection and RFC 6724. And, and Ed, I think you're the most familiar with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people fail to realize that there's a whole, when you have multiple addresses that are... In, multiple address families and then also multiple address types that exist within especially within v6 that there has to be an an algorithm right that helps you 
determine how you're going to, you know, sort of match up source and destination address selection. So your host needs to know like which address, if I have multiple, let's say I have global unicast, unique local and link local addresses all in the same interface, plus an IPv4 address. Which one do I use to go communicate and talk with? Like if I'm both for sending outbound, like I want to initiate something and also when I'm receiving something, what do I reply back with? And so it becomes this it becomes this very messy sort of algorithm. And that's what's described in 6724 as a way to sort of standardize that out so that all host operating systems sort of fall into the same set of behavior over and over again. There's exceptions for everything. And you can obviously, you know, munge up your prefix policy table <laughs> to change to change that behavior. But well, but really, but but can you? I mean, is that practical or doable? And can you can I do that in all operating systems? You can do it in the majority of operating systems, but I would say it's not particularly practical. I don't know how many folks want to go out and touch every single operating system. And then there, there's a use case where you, you may not be able to touch it because it's a you know it's an unmanaged device or it's a you know it's an embedded device and you don't get to you don't get to mess around with those. And so you're going to have to fall back to the default and hope that they implemented it. Uh, correctly, right? Which is for the mass majority of operating systems, they have they've they conform to either thirty four eighty four or sixty seven twenty four. But the problem with ULA is exactly that: the difference between thirty four eighty four and sixty seven twenty four is that ULA became less preferred. <laughs> I guess is the easiest way to, to sort of talk about it. And so, if you're running a dual stack network, you're actually going to run into a lot of problems with ULA. Now, if you're running a V six only network, you can get ULA to work. But if you're running a dual stack network and you decide on ULA, you're actually going to prefer V4 over the ULA address space. We've seen this pretty consistently. Now, if you've got an older operating system, this is where it gets weird. It will prefer ULA over IPv4 if you still got a 3484 uh, RFC compliant device hanging out there. So fun, fun. (laughs) Try and figure out which device is doing what. But the reality is, is that ULA for modern operating systems, anything current, just is not preferred. And so it's got, you know, because of that, you're just not going to see the sort of behavior that you want in terms of doing V6 first within your network topology if you're using OA and you happen to be in a dual stack environment. Now, if you're in a V6 only environment, you can use ULA and global unicast and it's going to then use the longest prefix match. So if you're talking from a device that has a ULA address to another device having a ULA address, the longest prefix match, it's going to say like ULA is, is perfectly good and valid and it's going to go ahead and use it. Assuming that those, you know, those prefixes are considered closer matches than the global unicast address space, which, you know, gets down in the whole weeds of, you know, how it actually determines which one it's going to use. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, you guys. I mean, that's, that's the short, that's the not so short version of the answer. Well, the T, yeah. And the TL, TLDR version of that is what, I mean, it, it, it's not going to be craft and if in a dual stack environment and and the, the, we're already dealing with this operational reality for help desk folks that you know it's it's kind of a nightmare in the scenario where you're running dual stack and you're trying to figure out why a particular application is picking one particular address family from one particular node and and figuring out you know where the where the issue is so if there's not connectivity or there's degraded performance or something like that with with multiple address families and so you're just really complicating that scenario even more with ULA. And I guess you have to back up to why are you using it in the first place? Because that's that's really what it boils down to is like, why have you deployed it in the first place? What was your reason to deploy it? And if there's an idea that it that it's somehow providing additional security, I, you know, based on the fact that it's it's 
locally limited, then, you know, I, I guess you could see somebody like grabbing it to use in, in an environment that where they thought they needed a, a greater level of security. But I, you know, we've got an IPv6 security uh, guy here, right here on the podcast. What, <laughs> what does he think about that? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've heard examples of organizations that might be trying to use both global addresses and unique local addresses where you use so you're, you're kind of advertising two RAs or an RA with two prefix information options, PIOs in it, I think option three, right? And in it, in the RA indicates to the host that, hey, it has this two blah, blah, blah global address and a FD random number, blah, 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 slash 64. And the host then gets two, it gets multiple addresses, right? It has Probably for the global, it has a, a temporary and a, and a privacy, maybe. It, and then for the uh, unique local, it has a unique local address and a link local address. And so depending on where it's communicating, it then uses that address selection method, as Ed described, to choose when to use which one. Because maybe you have certain administrative functions that you need to use and you like vulnerability scanning or patch management, and you only want that to be internal. And then the global address is used when the node needs to communicate to the internet. Right. So that could be an option that provides some security, but then global, but then as I'd mentioned, I think depending on different operating systems, post OS behavior could be different and you don't want it to be totally different and have to manage well, an environment where different hosts are doing different things. Yeah, that's where it gets really confusing. I yeah. mean, and, and and the funny thing is we try to solve this in site local. If we remember, we, mm -hmm. we had set up some well-known DNS name mm -hmm. resources so that your yep. DNS never went across. You know, you didn't, you didn't have hosts that were go out and connect directly, especially for enterprises. They don't want hosts going out and directly connecting to the internet for their DNS name resolving, right? They, they're mm -hmm. like, no, 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 no. These are name resolvers, so we yeah, can filter. Split brain DNS. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and so and so you know ULA, you could provide a ULA address for for DNS for for you know for the local national name resolver and be like off 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 to off to the races if you needed it that way um, for any given reason. But the reality is is that you can do all of this with global unicast and just mm -hmm. good routing rules and good firewall rules. There's no reason that you would you know necessarily need ULA to do that specific function. I have seen mm -hmm. some. To Scott's point around the security side, I do think if you want to run like an out-of-band network with a VPN, and you're like, we have to get in, and the only thing that can talk to each other is ULA to ULA, and we're never going to leak that out on the, mm -hmm. on the public internet, that could make a lot of sense for an out-of-band network that you're running V6 only. I can I see that as being very pragmatic and, mm -hmm. and useful for that function, and you know you're never going to leak it out, so you're sort of like, okay, I don't, I don't have to worry about that, and I have to be VPN in to connect to that thing. Yeah. It's, and it's, and it's IPv6 only. And it's IPv6 only. So there's, mm -hmm. there's some use cases. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a total like negative on ULA for all things, and I think there's, there are use cases from um, maybe an operational standpoint that make a lot of sense. Like if you're running a nuclear site facility, maybe just run that on ULA. <laughs> <laughs> don't connect that to the internet at all. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah, but, a good strategy. But how, how do you get? How, but how do you get Stuxnet on the on the network if you if you're not actually connected? <laughs> USB flash drive. <laughs> oh, there you um, go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sneaker net. net. Yeah. Sneaker that's net. How that yeah. Gets yeah. Uh, to to your point, Ed, I've seen 
Fortinet, Fortigate, FortiClient, VPN clients, if you just go through the default setup procedure of a IPsec or SSL FortiClient setup, it will use FD. Right. <laughs> and a, not a and not a random number, but your VPN clients will get a ULA address by default. And I guess that the thought there is that you're a remote access VPN. And then when you VPN back into the organization, your communication will then be private. You know, regardless of how you might have configured split tunneling or no split tunneling. Right. And you just have to do routing enforcement at that point. Mm-hmm. The client needs to know yeah. what routes it needs to push mm-hmm. across that link. But that's it's it, you know, it's funny because technically I guess you could do that with a link local address too, right? Like you mm-hmm. necessarily have to do that with uh um, with the ULA, but it is unique. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it makes it a little bit easier in terms of not having collisions because the collision side is, is a right. potential issue. Although you're still going to use the interface identifier scope ID to define which interface yeah. you're going to put the traffic across. Yeah. There's another issue with ULA is I don't know of a single IPAM system that keeps track of ULA. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I just don't no, or I haven't done enough research into it. But if you want to use ULA and you have all these random numbers, you need to keep track of them because you're using, you're creating all these ULAs for different slash 48s. You want to keep track of where you've put these different random FD random number slash 48s. And so you need to keep track of them. And then you also need to manage that 48 and break out the slash 64s from it maybe you have an address plan that says, well, I take the 48, then I break it up into 56s and then 64s from there. And you want to keep track of it and document it somewhere in an IPAM. But then your IPAM doesn't support ULA. And so you're left doing a wiki or (laughs) or spreadsheet or text file. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you can manually enter the ULA. You you just don't have any of that. None of the IPAM functionality is really going to give you any of the the stuff that conforms to to the RFC. So yeah, you're just stuck, like you know, just putting it in manually, and then and you know, it, you have no ability to track the randomness, as you said, or or generate the randomness, as you said. Sure, you do. You just write that write that Python script that rips through <laughs> your your route table and then sorts it for you. And then it's, this is the exercise for all the Python folks that want to learn how to do this. So here you go. This is your, <laughs> your lab great. assignment. So I want you to create a thousand ULAs. And then and then go through, inject them in your route table, and then scrape them all, and then import them <laughs> to your IPAM tool. And you have to write all the Python to do that. So Busy work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, sort of the point, right? Operationally, it's just super inefficient. Like it's just not your it's not your friend in terms of trying to make make life good that way. So I think uh, maybe, maybe that's an exaggeration on the point, but it sort of is the point, right? It's 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 not super effective that way, especially when. Global Unicast does all of this for you and is mm-hmm. you know, well-managed, well-formed, and uh, very easy to sort of set up the rules around that. Let's sort of like do the devil's advocate position here. If I'm I'm an enterprise person and I'm deciding to deploy IPv6 and and now, you know, I'm listening to this podcast and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the message I think I'm taking away is, well, I really shouldn't use ULA for these, you know, reasons X, Y, and Z that were, were mentioned earlier in the podcast, and I should use GUA instead. Hmm, Okay. But make me comfortable with that. Like what, you know, I'm using GUA, but what, what am I, you know, and, and I know that ULA causes problems, but what is it about, you know, why is it that I'm selecting GUA to use as, as, as the protocol instead of ULA? Well, it gives you access to the internet, number one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But <laughs> maybe that's, that's a problem for me, right? Maybe I'm, because I'm thinking, 
and this is, I guess I'm sort of getting at the idea that, that there's a lot of folks out there that are still sort of, you know, stuck. Uh, still and, thinking that, still thinking that a global unicast means that it's actually on the public internet. Yeah, like, that's not necessarily exactly. true. That's not necessarily, yeah, that's not necessarily, that argument isn't, isn't necessarily true. You can control that via routing or via firewall and just knock that traffic down if you want. So you can control the address in the exact same way. I, I suppose for those of us that, you know, just operationally, you know, not as mature in terms of, of thinking through that problem, but you don't look any different than a service provider. You don't have to route things if you don't want to, or, or you could put them through a proxy too. So you could hundred percent take an address space, put it through and say like, oh, I just, you're, for you to get to web traffic, you're going to go through a proxy, which is no different than how we do it with V4 today for, for those use cases. I don't see that as any different. Right. Yeah. The issue is there's people out there who think that if no one knows my address, then I'm safe. If I have this private address space that's tucked inside my organization and the internet can't see it, the bad guys can't get to me. But like you just described, Ed, I can go through a web proxy and download malware right. just as easy. Just I, as could easy. Do a, I could be using ULA inside. I can go through my secure web gateway. If it doesn't have proper V6 threat intelligence, I can still go to badguy.com over over and fetch malware and download it on my computer. And then the bad guy has the command and control session. Now, now the bad guy is probably like, what the heck? You know, <laughs> this computer's <laughs> using ULA. That's odd, <laughs> you know, and then they can map out, you know, so the assumption you're trying to make is that you don't have any malware on any computer in your entire organization and that the bad guys haven't mapped out your internal private address space either. It just takes one piece of malware inside to then map out your yeah. topology. So and, it's and thinking that if someone doesn't know my address, I've inherent I'm inherently more secure. But Ed, you described it's it's statefulness and firewalls that is what we really desire. Exactly. And I and I think it's important for many people in the assumption, and this is one thing we haven't brought up is on the ULA side, there's an assumption that there is a NAT mechanism automatically in, in, in V6. You know, we if, if you're not as familiar with V6 and you're like, oh, well, they do it the same way as V4, right? So we're going to have this NAT mechanism that's going to work for us. That NAT mechanism is not as prolific <laughs> as you may think, and it doesn't necessarily work in the same way that you think. And there's and there's a couple different varieties of it. And uh, and I hate to tell you, but, you know, STUN, you know, RFC what is it? Fifty three eighty nine. I don't know. I'm pulling. I'm guessing on that one. But Stun's going to work across across the NAT methods that are used for V six, just as just like they are for V four. I mean, there's nothing super unique around that. And so, you know, they can use ICE and be able to do end to end communications in the same way, like the way we do NAT traversal today. There is limited NAT sort of capabilities within V six, and I think we'll probably park that one and deal with it as a different show because there's so, there's a bunch of different methods around it, but. You know, yeah, I, th I think that's the automatic assumption when people are using ULA. It's, it's going to look exactly like what I do with RFC 1918 and IPv4 and then natting to a, you know, a, you know, some sort of public IPv4 address space and it's going to be off to the races and it's the same sort of operational model, which I totally get. I get the mm -hmm. hit the easy button. This is what I understand. This is what I know how to build. Let's build the same thing in IPv6. So that quick instinct model of reusing what I already know. I think that's where ULA really sort of comes into the discussion more and more. It's sort of like, oh, well, we'll just use it in the same way. I don't I don't know if you guys feel the same yeah, way. But I, I that completely seems... agree with that. Yeah. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what, hopefully, after listening to this episode, you'll, <laughs> you'll sort of uh, hold your fire in that regard and say, maybe I need to dig into this a little bit more and not just 
go ahead and deploy ULA reflexively with the same topology and the same layout that I'm, I'm you know, using with IPv4 and treating it like private addressing an IPv4 with NAT. And that, we're, that's, you know, if you take away anything from the show, it's like, don't do that. Just it, there's no, you're not gaining anything by doing that. If anything, you're just actually making your life more difficult down the road and, and start to think about why, how you can use GUA everywhere and, and what the, what the limitations are for you in, in your particular environment. And chances are there probably aren't any, especially if you've you know gotten away from the perimeter security model where you've overprivileged the idea that NAT is giving you any sort of security at all. Yeah. And don't take our word for it. Try it for yourself. This is a great opportunity to use your <laughs> IPv6 proof of concept lab, which just deploy ULA in a lab. See how your hosts behave. See how it works. Create that random number. Enjoy typing that in and see <laughs> a bunch of times. And Maybe you can memorize a 40-bit random number converted to hex. Get some experience with it, test it, and I think then you will start to see the things that we've just described today. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and the funny thing is, if you are going to violate the ULA ruling sets about you know not doing the randomness, my one bit of advice, if you're going to do that, at least match your global unicast v, v6 address space versus matching your v4 <laughs> topology yes, address space. So that way... That way, at least when you're writing scripts and everything else, it's going to be a little bit easier to match your ULA to your global unicast and, and sort of understand what host you're dealing with. And to further that point, if you don't have a GUA plan yet and you're deploying ULA and you don't have anything to map it to on, on the global unicast IPv6 side, then you're already in big trouble because you're you're basically deploying you know, what would probably look like for future folks looking at the network, a sort of transitional address model and, you know, not, not keeping in mind that you've, you've got this, you know, potentially this huge amount of GUA space that you could be using to, to deploy everything into and, and solve a lot of problems that way. But you, you get to do your address plan twice. Tom? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to end up uh, having, I know. Yeah. and, and chances are you're going to end up doing it, you know, a couple times anyway, but, uh, but having to go in and, and weed out the ULA that you put in before because it you know was sort of a stopgap or something that you didn't really think through too too deeply on, uh, you know that's that's going to be even even a bigger headache than just the standard you know well I I didn't I didn't subnet it on the nibble boundary or you know I gave too many nibbles to this function and not enough to this other function, you know that's one order of problem to have. Uh, there's a whole another deeper order of problems that you run into if, if you're trying to, to extract ULA from the network because it wasn't really deployed with any sense. Yeah, all temporary yeah. fixes are permanent. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's in a nutshell, yeah. that's it, right? Yeah. And I know we have a lot of really smart listeners and I know there's some people out there thinking to myself, aha, I know what I'm going to do. They said it's a 40-bit random number. Instead, I'm going to take my 32-bit V4 address, mm-hmm. I'm going to convert it to hex and put it in that 40-bit number. So I'm going to have FD, FF, something, you know, 8 bits, then take my 32-bit V4 address, convert it to hex, map it in there, then that gives me the 48. Just don't. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you creative people out there, don't get that creative because that'll just be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, just match match to your global unicast address space. And I think the the reason that we say that is because you know, if you're planning your at least your global unicast address space well, uh, at least your ULA plan will look reasonable from a topology standpoint. Even though you're not doing the randomness, the reality is no one is anyway. 
So let's just get over that one right? yeah. uh-huh. and, and, and deal with it. And, and at least you have something that matches through from a route policy basis. It looks more consistent. It's going to be easier to write your firewall rules. And you really, you know, the eventual long-term plan is to turn off your V4 anyway, or you potentially need to deploy V6 only for a particular, you know, function. Maybe it's a data center or something else because you're out of V4 or public cloud, you know, and and you need to be able to make use of it that way. And and so I think this is a much better strategy, at least if if you are going to consider doing ULA for any given reason. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why you would, but but uh, maybe you have those small use cases that we mentioned before, and, and it makes sense for you to do so. Do, do we feel like we covered most of it, or is it at least the ULA side? I mean, we talked about a little bit, we didn't talk too much about deployment, but it's not that much different than global unicast, right, you guys, in terms of Really sort of deploying it and laying it out there. I don't think it's anything unique there in terms of just it's an address. <laughs> yeah, it's it's deceptively uh, deceptively simple in that regard. Yeah, sure, go ahead and deploy ULA. Yeah, yeah. and then, is there any alternatives to ULA? I mean, I don't I don't just think we talked about unicast. that. But I think we did. Global Unicast, global yeah, yeah, Unicast, okay. all the way down. And I would I would say all of all three of us probably uh, maybe I'm sp- speaking out of turn here, but I think global unicast is the way to go. I don't know how the rest of you guys feel. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> That's where we land consensus wise. Is if you're going to do anything, do it with global unicast. Just do your staple firewalls. Do your do your routing controls the way you want, and and you can you know things are good, and and uh, you can still do all of the you can still do weird NAT things if you really really want to. It doesn't change whether it's ULA or global unicast. You can still just like you know you can. You can nap, you know, public V4 to public V4 if you wanted. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing stopping you there <laughs> from doing that. So I think it's, I think the models are pretty similar that way. And that's, uh, I, I just, I think for the audience, it's really just getting over the, we have to match our operational model one for one for what we're, we're already doing. I think that's the mistake that everyone makes. And and the final note, again, to just remind what we talked about earlier if in a dual stack environment, if you're deploying ULA, you, you might have IPv4 being preferred over it. So just keep that in mind. That's a common problem. Well, hey, unlike V6, we run out of space for the podcast. You can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. And you can also hit, hit up each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at Eorly. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. We really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break podcasts that are, you know, all the other great technical content over packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.